Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, Lord, as we just sang, we want to see your face. We want to see you. Lord, we need you. We need your word to come. Penetrate our hearts. Be sustenance for our souls. We need it as our bodies need food and water. So God, I pray that we would feast on your word, that it would take us to the person of Christ, that we may treasure him all the more, that we would see your face in this text today, that we would be changed, that we would be moved. Please be with the words I say. Please be with the ears of the hearers. Please empower them by your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 22. We're going to be talking today about courage for the divide. Now, while you're turning in your Bibles to the text, let's quickly review how we got to this point. We've been systematically going through the book of Acts. Luke began his narrative with the resurrected Jesus ascending back to heaven. And he reassures his followers with these words, the summary statement of the whole book in 1.8. But you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen these words come to life in the 22 chapters we've covered so far. Christ sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and the church in Jerusalem is birthed. And the Jewish establishment, the long-standing, powerful Jews, the ones who refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah, were hostile to this new movement. And we see a punctuated rejection as Jerusalem, the very heart of Judaism, rejects the gospel in the stoning of Stephen in chapter 7. And Jerusalem's rejection marked the going out to all Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jews outside of Jerusalem and even now the Gentile world hears the message of Christ and believe. And the narrative broadens as we read the account after account after account of how the gospel is going forth and spreading across the lands of the ancient Near East and to the very ends of the earth. And now in these past several chapters, we've kind of started to hone in to focus on Paul and his journey, first to Jerusalem and then on to Rome. We've taken our varied cast, scattered across the world, and we're narrowing it down, Paul, his journey. So what's happening here? Luke is punctuating the book. He's taking a wide and varied narrative, and he's driving it to a point. All right, so pay attention as this shift is both intentional and meaningful. Two weeks ago, Corey illustrated Paul's hope in Christ when he arrived in Jerusalem and navigated interactions with former Jews in the Jerusalem church. Last week, Carlton brought us to the end of chapter 22, where the Jews in Jerusalem have once again rejected Christ's message. And this unruly mob has forced Paul to be taken into Roman custody, the gospel divide. And we pick up our text today as the Roman tribune in Jerusalem, his name is Lysias, is attempting to figure out what is all this commotion about. <clears throat> so let's look at the text. Verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, that is Lysias, the Roman tribune, unbound him, that is Paul, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, and I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him, strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. 
Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. So let's dig in. Our passage opens in verse 30 with our Roman tribune Lysias trying to piece together why Paul is causing so much unrest with the Jews. Remember, the Jewish nation was under the civil government of Rome. And now that Paul is revealed he's a Roman citizen, he's entitled to a trial according to the Roman justice system. But Lysias, the tribune, he has a problem. In order for a proper Roman trial to be conducted, there must be charges. And right now there aren't any charges. So what does the Roman tribune do? He assembles a panel of experts in the Sanhedrin, kind of a Supreme Court type thing of the Jewish law, to try to understand what offense has this man committed? So we begin this sort of arraignment process. Enter verse one, Paul's opening statement. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, strike him on the mouth. Paul can barely get a sentence out of his mouth before the high priest orders him to be struck. Now, church, this is not common. Physical violence was not normally a part of these hearings. To put it in today's terms, it would be like standing in a trial and saying, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I stand before you today an innocent man who has done nothing wrong and getting hit in the face by the prosecutor. What would you think that trial is about to be? A fair and unbiased examination of the facts? Or a hostile setting in which your guilt is assumed and your testimony untrusted? We see from the outset, this is a mock proceeding. Paul is already guilty and worthy of death as a foregone conclusion in the minds of the Sanhedrin. Now, lest we envision this thing as a relic of the past, right, far removed from our modern context, remember, we've seen this phenomenon fairly recently in our country. A legal proceeding in which what is said during the actual hearing has no bearing whatsoever on the outcome. If you remember last fall, October 2020, following the death of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Amy Coney Barrett was submitted to the United States Senate as what? A candidate for the office of Supreme Court. Many of you remember how contentious her nomination was. The Democratic Party claimed her nomination wasn't legitimate, 
because the election was so close, and the Republicans claimed full constitutional authority to make the appointment. And when it came time for the confirmation vote, each senator did what? They voted yay or nay, almost exactly among party lines. Republicans voting yes, Democrats voting no. And I remember watching these confirmation hearings, as many of you probably did, and I'm not sure that one person in those hearings was actually trying to examine her credentials, to understand her fitness for office, to determine her suitability for the position of Supreme Court justice, you know, the thing the hearing is supposed to be for. Everyone had made up their minds beforehand. The hearing was an absurdity. They used it for gathering some Twitter sound bites. Like, listen, listen to some of these questions she was asked. Do you play piano? Why do judges wear robes? Is climate change real? Do you own a gun? Does your religion mean a lot to you? Do you see? The hearing itself was a show, and for the senators involved, it had no bearing whatsoever on their final vote. Their minds were made up far in advance. And so this text we have today, it bears the exact same characteristics. And it's going to be critical for us to understand it, that we see what a mockery the Sanhedrin is making of this hearing. They don't care to uncover ideas. Paul is guilty. And they will use any means at their disposal, even force, to demonstrate his guilt, to be rid of this man. And just as the mob would seek to lynch to stone Paul, so too the Sanhedrin resorts to violence. They step outside the bounds of the law in this passage. They are quickly established what, as an extension of the mob. They're not different from what we saw in the last chapter. They are continuing the rejection and rancor towards the message of Christ, and they are just as riotous and unruly as the people they represent. But there is something different about this text than last week. Thankfully, we have another presence in this legal proceeding. Who is it? Lysias. Yes, thanks. Help me out here. The Sanhedrin would not decide Paul's fate. It's in the hands of Lysias, our Roman tribune. So this passage marks a major movement in the books of Acts, and I want us to catch it. Okay? If you were with us last week, you'll remember Carlton demonstrated Paul speaks outside the barracks, and he's making an appeal to his Jewish brethren. He spoke in Hebrew, the language of the Jews, and he makes an impassioned speech to a crowd of his kinsmen who respond by trying to kill him, flinging dust in the air, a likening to the pronouncement of judgment by Jesus' disciples as they shook the dust off their feet after a town rejected the gospel. But just as Jesus, at one point in his ministry, you remember, set his face to Jerusalem to accomplish his mission there, I believe this text marks the beginning of Paul setting his face to Rome. He turns his attention away from the Jews and towards the Gentiles. So the hearing in our text today would be in the Greek language, not the Hebrew. And the audience is Lysias and the Romans, not the Jews. So let's get into it. Verse 3. Paul, having just had his initial address cut off, speaks again. God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now, that's, that's an interesting choice of insult, right? Don't hear it much today. Can't say I've ever been uh, in a car, see somebody get cut off in traffic and go, do that again, you whitewashed wall. Right? It's, it's, maybe, maybe we should try it, bring it back. Uh, Paul is using a term of rebuke from Ezekiel chapter 13. You don't need to turn there, but Ezekiel 13 is a rebuke of false prophets. So the imagery is of a wall when it's crumbling, it's falling down, it's antiquated. And false prophets rise up and they say, don't worry, Israel, we've got a solution for this. Take this bucket of whitewash, 
get your paint roller, and we're going to clean this wall up. And they whitewash the wall, and they tell the people, great, you're good, the wall looks better, everything is fine. And Ezekiel says that when the winds and the floods and the hailstones come, the wall will be swept away. A similar rebuke was given by Jesus when he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. Many of your minds probably went there when you heard whitewashed. They look fine on the outside, but on the inside, the bones of dead men. So with Paul's rebuke, he goes on to say, Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now why does he say this, right? Does the Sanhedrin, does the council not know that it's illegal to strike him in this context? He knows. Paul knows that they know. But remember our audience, Lysias. What's Paul doing? Paul is speaking to Lysias, saying this high priest that would sit here and pretend to uphold the law, he casts it aside as soon as it's convenient for him. Here's where it gets exciting, right? You, you thought it was already. We're entering a section of text where this, there's this kind of rhetorical judo happening as they go back and forth. Those who stood by Paul said, would you revile God's high priest? Right, this is, this is Ananias' groupies coming in to call a foul. Whoa, man, that's the high priest. And as a ruler of the people, you are bound by Jewish law to respect that office. You would come into this court pretending to have a clean conscience to abide by the law, but you're breaking it. And then in verse 5, Paul takes him to the mat. He says, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul, first he demonstrates his understanding of the law. Paul was formerly a Pharisee, probably had large portions of the Pentateuch memorized. He says, listen, I know what you're quoting. It's Exodus 22, 28. I know the law, once again, demonstrating Elysius. This is not for lack of understanding. But what does he make, what do we make of this claim? Well, I didn't know he was the high priest. I hear that phrase a lot from my kids. Why'd you do that? I don't know. Why'd you hit him? I don't know. Where's your water bottle? I don't know. Why does Paul say that here? Did Paul really not know who the high priest was? Some would say he genuinely didn't know. And he was saying, well, my bad, out of bounds here. But I don't agree with that reading of the text. Here's why. Paul walks into this council. And this council was called by the Roman Tribune. This isn't some random assembly of Jews they pulled off the street going, hey, like, hey you come in here, you come in here, we're going to do a focus group, we're going to yeah, take a straw poll, figure out what's up with this guy. This is an assembly of men who represent the Jewish nation to the Romans in the city of Jerusalem. Only a rube would miss the clear contextual hints that you're dealing with authority figures here. And what's more, Paul has seen the authority of Ananias exercise, and I think he's even acknowledged it himself. The command to strike Paul, open our text, set the tone for this hearing, who gave that command? Ananias. And given the very significant implications of striking a Roman citizen, do you think that anyone other than a high-ranking authority figure would have given such an order? If you're not sure in your mind, I want you to try this. Next time you're out and about and you see a police officer, pick a friend, maybe somebody you don't like so much, maybe somebody sitting in the pews next to you, and scream, officer, arrest that man! What do you think will happen? Is the officer going to arrest him? Her? No, you don't have the authority. This man who ordered Paul struck had authority. And I think Paul's earlier response in verse 3 gives us more clues. Paul knew exactly, was clearly, that this person was a ruler of the people. 
one to whom the mandate in Exodus 22 would apply. Remember Paul asked, are you sitting as a judge of the law to judge me according to the law, yet don't uphold it yourself? If Paul doesn't already know that he's dealing with an authority figure, a judge, somebody who is sitting on the council presiding over him, then this statement makes no sense, right? It's the difference between these two statements. Listen to these, okay? You're a mechanic, and yet you don't know how to change a tire, versus you're a hairdresser, and yet you don't know how to change a tire. One of these statements, the first one, is a rebuke. The other, not so much. Being a hairdresser has no bearing on whether or not you should be able to change a tire. Being a mechanic does. His statement indicates I know you're a judge, and as a judge, you should be upholding the law. He's drawing a contrast. So why would Paul utter a phrase? Like, I didn't know he was the high priest. Paul is once again pointing out the behavior of Ananias, that it's so heinous, so uncouth, the offensiveness of his character is the defining characteristic of this man, not his priestly office. Calvin said it like this, Therefore, this is the meaning of the words, brethren. I acknowledge nothing in this man which belongeth to the high priest. Burn. But Paul keeps going. In verse 6, Luke clues us into the fact that the council was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. So remember, we have two different groups here. And while they shared power and authority over the Jews, there remained sharp divisions between them. So Paul lights a fuse. He points the conversation directly at the wedge that separates these two groups. So remember, he says, listen, my hope is in the resurrection. And as it pertains to the hope in the resurrection, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. Are you, Pharisees on the council, going to let these Sadducees over here say, I can't place my hope in the resurrection? And now the fuse is burning. You see, the Pharisees, they were the Jewish Nationalist Party. They were the People's Party. And as representatives of the people, the Pharisees were expected to defend common views on the resurrection, on the supernatural. Because these Roman-leaning Sadducees, they didn't believe in any of it. So this is a brilliant move. Paul is effectively saying, hey, Pharisees, these Sadducees, they're telling me I'm a traitor and a heretic. Why? Because I believe in supernatural workings of Jehovah. Are you going to sit idly by and let them freely condemn men because I hope in the resurrection? I wonder what the common folk would think of your leadership when they learn you've sided with the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees, like puppets on a string, respond. They rise up in opposition to the Sadducees. Some even go so far as to stand and declare, we don't find anything wrong with this guy. He's on our side. He's one of us. And boom. The council explodes into the same kind of violence we saw from the mob last week. The infighting becomes so intense that the Roman tribune again fears Paul is going to be killed. And he has to send soldiers to rescue him. And the hearing is over. Let's take a step back. Because I want to examine these events from the perspective of Lysias, our Roman tribune. Remember that we said that Paul has set his face towards Rome. And now in the presence of the Roman authorities, speaking Greek, he has them in mind as his audience. So as Lysias, what do I see? 
The hearing began with Ananias, the high priest, acting unlawfully. Paul went on to establish both a knowledge and a recognition of the law, and he, he put the Jewish authorities in sharp contrast to it. And then Paul self-identified with one of the two sects of Judaism represented there, and then violence ensued, ensued over more internal Jewish matters. So if Lysias entered the hearing in order to establish formal charges against Paul, what does he have? Were charges actually established here? Well, certainly not insurrection. You remember last week, we saw the Romans feared Paul was the same Egyptian who had formerly led a rebellion against Rome. Now, if Paul was charged with insurrection, he was in trouble. There's one thing that will not be tolerated in the setting of an empire, it's rebellion. Bribery, sure. Corruption, maybe. Insurrection and rebellion, no. But what if Paul is accused by the, matters of, by the Jews on internal matters of the Jewish law? What do the Romans care? Lysias would have had no interest in what he perceived to be religious squabbles. By framing the dispute around the hope of the resurrection, Paul has successfully taken the conversation, the charges, and shaped them into a matter of Jewish religious practice. So I want to make a side note here, because I think it's important what he did. It's easy to ask why Paul exercised cunning in this proceeding. Paul, why, what are we doing here? Why would, why would Paul divide his accusers and paint the charges in a favorable light? Why wouldn't he simply just speak truth, go after the high priest, let's go? Paul had the words. He could have offered the most scathing of reproaches to the high priest. I mean, one way it'd be satisfying to watch him do it, right? To look at the high priest and the council and just keep calling them all out. Imagine if Paul said something. Imagine he, if he started insulting like Martin Luther, right? Once Martin Luther said, you looked at his opponents in a similar way, said, you are the head of all the worst scoundrels on earth, a vicar of the devil, an enemy of God, an adversary of Christ, a destroyer of Christ's churches, a teacher of lies, blasphemies, idolatries, an arch thief and a robber, a murderer of kings, an insider to all kinds of bloodshed, a brothel keeper over all brothel keepers and all vermin, even that which cannot be named, an antichrist, a person of sin, a child of perdition, a true werewolf. Mic drop. And Paul would have been killed on the spot. So is Paul acting in cowardice? Is he acting in sin by confounding the Sanhedrin and turning them against one another so that he might go on to Rome? To answer this, I want us to recall two gospel texts from John's gospel. 1 John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now Jesus is speaking to a similar group of Jews. The Jews have appealed to Abraham. They're like, hey, we're righteous. We have Abraham as our father. And if anybody ever tries to tell you Jesus never claimed to be God, they've not read their Bibles. We're going to look at an explicit claim by Jesus here. Jesus says, listen, you hope in the promise of Abraham. I was there before him, and I take the very name of God that the Jews are afraid to utter. I am. In the minds of the Jews, this was blasphemy. And so what do they do? So they picked up stones to stone him. The Jews knew when somebody commits blasphemy, the crime or the punishment for that crime, you pick up stones and you stone them. So they looked at each other and said, all right, boys, guess we're going to have a stone in the day. Here's Jesus claiming to be God. And what did Jesus do? He hid himself. 
and went out of the temple. Don't you wish you had more details? Like, how did Jesus hide himself? Was he, like, ducking behind curtains in the temple, like, hiding in an empty water pot? Like, what, what did this look like? But then again, in John 10, 30 and 39, Jesus makes another God claim. I and the Father are one. And there they go. All right, boys, there he goes, claiming to be God again. Get your stones, right? The Jews pick up stones again to stone him. And there's a little back and forth about Jesus being the stone of God. And again, they sought to arrest him, and in verse 39, but he escaped from their hands. Jesus hid. Jesus probably ran. Not because he feared arrest. He later stood like a lamb in the face of the Roman soldiers as he willingly went to his death. But in these passages, it wasn't yet his time. There was work still to be done, so Jesus exercises a physical means of evasion, not to run from his mission, but in service to the mission. And so Paul is doing something similar. He has no physical means of evasion at his disposal. He can't go hide behind a curtain somewhere, right? But instead, what Paul does have, he has a particular gifting, is very skilled in rhetoric and his knowledge of the Jewish people and culture. So in service to his mission to go to Rome, what does Paul do? He employs a rhetorical means of evasion. What I want you to see here, this behavior is not out of step with how the kingdom is advanced through scripture. I have a good friend who told me this story. Uh, he's from here in the States, and he went on a trip to Turkey. The population of Turkey is 99.8% Muslim. So my friend is an outsider, Westerner, fresh off the plane from America, and we're going to do some ministry. And he's having a conversation with one of the local believers there. My, friend's at, my friend asks, right, hey, Muhammad, he's a false prophet, right? Muhammad being the founder of Islam. A local believer answers, why, yes, of course he is. So my friend says, well, why don't we just start telling people that? I mean, give me a microphone, I'll stand on a box, we'll make some signs, we'll just let them know. He's a false prophet. Well, the local responds, because you'd probably get your tongue cut out, and then all of us would get kicked out of the country immediately. You see? This is the application of wisdom, cunning, discernment, stewardship of an opportunity there, all coming together to form a strategy for how to best be on mission for Christ in Turkey. And guess what? Wasn't standing on a box with a microphone calling out Muhammad for being a false prophet. It was a much more surgical approach. And the approach makes use of the peculiar giftings and skills brought by the local church there in Turkey. So finally, verse 11. We get to beautiful verse 11. I don't know who divided these sermons, but thank you for putting verse 11 with this passage because it's where the Lord stands by Paul and admonishes him, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so too you must also testify in Rome. What a word so precisely injected into what could be perceived as a chaotic or a hopeless place in this narrative, right? Paul goes to Jerusalem, gets kicked out the temple, then a bunch of common Jews try to kill him, then a bunch of ruling Jews try to kill him, and next week we'll see more Jews form a pact and try to kill him on a road, right? Like, what does the Lord confirm? He confirms Paul's work. You are testifying. You are witnessing. And you might say, wait, 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 wait. Paul may have testified about Christ, 
When I think of spirit-empowered witnessing, I think about Pentecost, thousands saved from different nations, speaking in tongues, believers having all things in common. And that's true. When God's people testify, some will be saved, and it will be a glorious picture of the mercies of God. But if it's true that some will be saved, it necessarily follows that some will not. Perhaps even most will not. You remember the words of Matthew 7? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And while we should have confidence and we should rejoice as heaven does when even a single sinner comes to repentance, so too we should not be surprised when a testimony of the gospel is met with open, derisive, or even violent rejections. Faithful witnessing, this gospel divide, it will mean rejection. And I want you to step for a moment into Paul's shoes. A man who was born into the Jewish religion and whose early life was spent entirely in preparation for the Jewish religious scene. He probably aspired to the office of Pharisee could look into the future and saw himself living out his days, religious teacher of the law, ruler in the city of Jerusalem. He'd be welcomed there. He'd be honored. The story was set in modern times. Paul as a boy might have had posters of the Sanhedrin on his wall, maybe a signed robe from Gamaliel, his favorite teacher. He'd show that to his friends. He'd be like, man, that's his rookie year. I got his signature. Paul comes to this people he loves, his brethren, bearing the good news, the Messiah you've been waiting for, the hope of Israel, the King of kings has come. Believe on him and be saved. And what happens? Paul is thrown out of the temple. The gates shut behind. You're not welcome here. Paul speaks, pouring his heart out to his fellow Jews outside the barracks. And they try to kill him. Away with this man from the earth. And then in a hearing with the most learned and powerful Jews of his day, the guys he would have had on his wall as a kid, he is struck for even alluding to his innocence. This man is guilty. We do not accept him. Paul is facing a deeply personal rejection as everything in his former life, everything it once represented, is casting him out. Every institution and connection to his Jewishness has been turned against him. Why? Because he faithfully testified about what Christ has done. Church, the gospel divides. And in, when it divides, you will face rejection. By peers, by family, by coworkers, by friends. Some rejections will pass lightly, but many will sting. They'll hurt. They will be deeply personal, and they will come at great cost. And in those moments, you'll have to answer the question, like Paul did. Is it worth it? Why did I willingly walk into such a painful rejection? Why would I risk facing it again by going, testifying, Witnessing, doing the same thing in Rome. But verse 11, Jesus stood by Paul. Do you see? The God of the universe set his love on mankind, and through the work of Christ, he stands with us.
draws near to us, has fellowship with fallen creatures such as us. It's the promise he gave us in Matthew in the Great Commission. When he tells us to go, therefore, and make disciples of nations, to go be witnesses, to go testify, like we see unfolding here, how will we do that? What will hold us? What will keep us? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will stand with you always through rejections, through trials, through hardships we have in Christ. Church, if that doesn't impart courage, the fact that you have an all-knowing, all-powerful creator God who has set his love on you, calls you his bride, his very beloved, nothing will. So take courage and do what? Witness. Employ every faculty, every skill, every ability you have in sharing the good news of Jesus. In places where it looks like they'll accept you and places where they'll likely reject you. What can man do to me? We have the very Son of God standing with us as we witness. Take courage. Go forth. Maybe you sit here today, and when Paul speaks of his hope in the resurrection, you don't know what he means. Why would I hope in that? Can't I just hope in a good life, about the same as everyone else? And whatever happens to them, what happens to me? I would implore you, do not be deceived. We're all headed to a resurrection. Either a glorified resurrection in Christ, or to a resurrection of eternal condemnation apart from him. We, as followers of Christ, believe like Paul that Jesus was raised for the dead, and our hope is that this resurrection finished the work of paying the penalty for sin and conquering death for all who would follow him. So my admonition to you, hope in this resurrection, hope in Christ. If you want to know, how do I hope? What does that look like? Talk to somebody. Find somebody with one of the tags, the badges they've got, but they would love to speak with you about how we might hope in that. Let's pray, church. God, we come before you, a holy God in whose presence there is no sin. You are righteous and you are good, Father, and we would dare not come except we claim to come by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he has conquered sin, he has been raised to a new life, and that in our belief in him, we could dare to come before a God such as you. God, I pray that we would look at your call to be witnesses, and that we would not shrink back from rejection, divide, the perils of man, but that we would be encouraged by your presence, that we would be encouraged by your face, that we would be encouraged by who you are. God, that as we go, we would rejoice in that and rest in the sufficiency of who you are. We thank you, Father. We love you. Amen. I think Adam is going to come. We're going to recognize graduates and be dismissed. Thank you. Uh, if there's one thing I know about Josh Kane, it's that he loves you, church. This man loves you. He loves you very much. And uh, I see it in the way he serves you guys, and I see it the way he uh, takes seriously your walk with Christ. And he, he, I, I know he's meant 
so much to many of you today, and uh, and we love you, Josh. Thank you so much, buddy. Really, thank you for watching us through the Word today. Uh, so we do want to invite everyone to stay for our fellowship meal today. Uh, we want you to be here. We want you to uh, enjoy the fellowship time afterwards. But before we do that, before we go across the uh, to the community center and do that, we do want to recognize our graduates today. And we want to take a moment to do that. And the way we want to do that is I want to invite uh, those who are graduating from high school uh, and college. Well, we've, we had two college graduates, I think, and I don't know. I think, I don't know if one, Jameson, you're here. Yes, yeah, so Jameson, you go, you come on and Carrie, you can come up with him, and um, and uh, parents, parents, come on up here too, man, seriously, y'all, graduates, bring your parents, come on, come on, Robbie, please, come on, <laughs> yeah, bring, bring your parents on up here with you, yeah, yeah, go ahead, come on, uh, on up to the front, back up here, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, go ahead, no, I think it's important for the parents to be up here, because, um, I mean, when my son graduates high school, I want to stand next to him, so, uh, I think they should be up here, too, because they've, they've done a lot of work to get y'all here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so y'all go ahead and come on. Just line up across the front. And uh, so Miss Gail, uh, Gail McClellan, uh, has got some gifts for you guys. And as we go down and as we acknowledge these uh, graduates today, she's going to hand them a gift uh, just from Grace Fellowship. Um, what we're giving them today, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, is uh, Paul David Tripp's um, uh, devotional New Morning Mercy. Some of you may use that in your morning devotionals and things like that, and it's just a great tool. I use it myself. Uh, my wife uses it, uh, so we're going to give that to our graduates today as a, as a gift. So we'll just go on down the on uh, down the line here. This is Brody Brody Bean and his parents Marty and Leslie. Brody's graduating from Jacksonville High School today. Uh, all right, and then we have Annalise Annalise Gregerson. Her mom and dad, DJ and Britton, and Annalise is graduating from Westbrook Christian School. We have Autumn Hines, Autumn Hines and her mom, Robbie Hines, and Autumn is graduating from the Donahoe School. Then we have uh, Chloe Harmon, Chloe Harmon and her mom and dad, David and Melanie, and Chloe's graduating from Pleasant Valley High School. We have Sam, Sam Thacker, valedictorian of Faith Christian School. Gave his uh, speech the other night. Did that go well? All right, good deal. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, we're very proud of Sam, and uh, his parents uh, are up here, Chris and Christy. And his brother stands next to him, Jameson. Jameson Thacker is a graduate of Jacksonville State University this time. And Jameson's uh, fiance, right? Carrie, Carrie Wright, yeah, um, and then down there on the end, we have Patrick, yeah, Patrick Ricketts, and he's graduating from Jacksonville High School, and his mom, Jamie, down there, so church, let's give it up for all of our graduates today. We're very, very, very proud of you, and I know, you know, some of you have grown up in this church. This is the only place you've ever been to church, and then some of you came on later, but man, everybody in this church is so proud of you and what God has done in your life, and we look forward to seeing the next steps that all of you guys take. So you guys can be seated now. Robbie, you can sit down. I know you didn't want to be up here anyway. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, go ahead and stand together, church, and we want to dismiss you guys in a word of grace, and then we will go across the parking lot to the community center, and I believe, um, where's Gail? Gail, Gail?